Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with this one-year anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine and speak with a reporter who has covered the war from the beginning and prior to that was a correspondent in Russia for more than a decade. Joining us is Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy. His forthcoming book is The Fight is Here, Vladimir Zelensky and the War in Ukraine, and we will discuss the extent to which claims of a Russian defeat are premature and concerns that there is still a lag in supplying arms to Ukraine and that there could be a steady erosion of support for Ukraine if the war drags on for years. Then we'll examine the Chinese peace proposal, which they are calling a position paper, that has been met with scepticism by the US and NATO, although President Zelensky welcomes it and hopes to meet later with Xi Jinping. Joining us is Gilbert Rosman, the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the Assam Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia, and he's the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. Then finally, we'll look into why Americans are alienated from their own government after decades of self-serving economic dogma from the captains of industry about the magic of the free market, which has ended up serving the rich and powerful while impoverishing democracy and weakening our ability to tackle major challenges. Joining us is Naomi Oreskes, a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She received the Young Investigators Award from the National Science Foundation, serves as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency, and was a consultant to the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. Her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and Why Trust Science. Her latest book, Just Out, co-authored with Eric Conway, is The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Simon Schuster, who is a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Fight is Here, Vladimir Zelensky and the War in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Simon. And you've covered the war in Ukraine since it began a year ago. And prior to that, of course, you were in Moscow. So one year later, on the anniversary on Friday at the United Nations before the Security Council, the members all stood in for a moment of silence for the victims in Ukraine. But the moment of silence was quickly interrupted by the Russian uh, representative at the UN, who then tried to amend the moment of silence. So it was, it was a terrible, horrible moment. And it is a horrible situation. And I don't want to be continually bashing Russia because I have a great deal of affection for Russia, and I'm sure you do too, having spent so much time there. But what's happened to Russia? I mean, Putin has really not just conducted a hideous and brutal war, but he's also destroyed the reputation of a great civilization. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, from that moment at the United Nations that you just mentioned, there there was a a, a really poignant and, and difficult to watch scene where the Russian ambassador to the United Nations um, stood stood up and 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 urged other members of uh, other delegates to the United Nations to stand up in support of his position on the war. So uh, not Ukraine's, but to support the Russian the Russian point of view on this. And there was this really um, almost excruciating moment when other delegates sort of looked around at each other and said, "Are we going to stand up and support this guy? Do we have to?" Um, and, and I think it, it really encapsulated for me the, the position that Russia finds itself in, uh, trying to uh, strong arm, bully, bribe and pressure various countries around the world, from Africa to Latin America, Asia, to try to get some kind of coalition of support for what it's doing and increasingly coming up short. Uh, you know, I think there there are many reasons for that. Of course, the atrocities that are just impossible to deny, the naked act of aggression that was committed at the beginning of this invasion in February a year ago. Um, also, I think the power of uh, President Zelensky's uh, ability to communicate um, to uh, leaders and and people around the world um, to remind them and to show them what Russia is doing and to encourage them to support the Ukrainian side. So I think in, in that respect, too, Russia, Russia has quite a difficult adversary uh, in the information warfare dimension of, of this conflict. Um, but all in all, you know, you, you see Russia just flailing for some kind of support, some measure of dignity on the international stage, uh, some kind of coalition. And I think more and more the, the Russian leadership uh, is is realizing that that's just not going to happen. They're they're all alone on this thing. Um, you know, China is the big question mark. There's been a lot of reporting about whether China is going to supply any kind of weapons to Russia in this war. That's a big question. I think now President Zelensky has said that he's going to initiate a kind of a, a dialogue, maybe you could say a charm offensive, uh, in the direction of China. He he hopes to meet with. Uh, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Um, so we'll see how that comes out. But uh, you're right that, that Russia finds itself a year on desperately isolated and, you know, in, in a position that is just it's hard, hard to see uh, how you emerge from that with, you know, any standing on the international stage. And uh, Zelensky said he's open to a Chinese peace plan, uh, but he, at the same time, he rejects any compromise with what he calls a sick Putin. Mm-hmm. How much do you think, and uh, and you were there in Ukraine, how much do you think Bucha changed things? And, and that Bucha, of course, being the sort of town just outside of Kiev that uh, when the Russians withdrew, that was the first time we had an inkling of the kind of brutality that goes on behind the scenes in, in Russian-occupied territory where they summarily execute young men and kick the doors down and keep looking for the Nazis and don't find any. And the Ukrainians look upon them with total puzzlement as they scream about, where are the Nazis, where are the Nazis? I mean, it's surreal, isn't it, how propaganda works. We know propaganda works, but how did it work so so pervasively with uh, these Russian soldiers? And who have, a, by the way, who have a tradition of brutality in the Chechen wars and in Syria and then in Bucha? Well, let me take the first part of your question uh, first about the the role that the Bucha massacre played in in sh- shaping or changing the course of the war. Um, for the book, I did a lot of research about how that particular moment was perceived and experienced uh, by President Zelensky and his team, how it affected them, and and it's a really interesting turning point. Um, there was a, a fascinating meeting in a meeting. Uh, in the presidential compound in early April of 2022, where essentially after the the Bucha atrocities came to light, and soon after President Zelensky visited Bucha and saw the bodies of the victims for himself, saw the mass graves, he came back and he he met with his advisors uh, in the presidential compound there in the Situation Room. Um, And the consensus among his advisors was, we must stop negotiating with Russia now and forever. We cannot speak to them anymore. At that point, the peace process, uh, you know, weak as it was, um, tentative as it was, it was ongoing. 
but the the advisors were saying we the, the negotiators on the Ukrainian side were saying we, we have to stop now. That that's it. We we can't keep going in light of this. Interestingly, at that point, President Zelensky still told them, no, you have to carry on despite what's happening. If there's the slightest chance of reaching a peace deal, stopping this war through negotiations, we have to continue in spite of Bucha. So that was a really interesting point, and I think very revealing of President Zelensky's character and his determination in trying to find uh, a, a peace, trying to stop the war uh, earlier. Since then, I think he's um, more and more come to terms with the fact that there's just no negotiating with the Russians and he's he's given up on that. So Bucha was interesting and, and illustrative in, in that way. In terms of the atrocities um, that were committed there and, and, you know, whether they're connected to some tradition in the Russian armed forces, I spent some time in Bucha. I talked to the locals. I saw the, the sort of scenes of the crimes committed there. Um, and what you had was essentially a complete breakdown in military discipline. Um, I, it did not seem like, and investigators have, have not really found that um, there was a order given to annihilate the local population. Uh, that's what ended up happening, but it, it happened through a mix of uh, blind rage on the part of the Russian soldiers, a total lack of discipline, uh, horrific levels of drunkenness, uh, where they were just looting all the liquor stores and drinking whatever they could find, including uh, eau de cologne that they looted from people's homes and cleaning agents and so on. I mean, you know, you, you would I would visit these sites of uh, where the Russians were staying, their kind of makeshift garrisons in Bucha, and there were bo liquor bottles laying around everywhere among the um, uh, artillery shells, spent artillery shells. So that kind of gives you a sense of what, what happened there and what these soldiers were doing and what they were thinking. Uh, they were essentially left to their own devices to, to uh, like, you know, uh, uh, almost like teenage boys left to explore the limits of their own cruelty. Uh, I don't mean to diminish their, their responsibility um, for, for what happened. Uh, they should, and I think will bear responsibility for the war crimes uh, perpetrated there. But, but the picture was one of, complete breakdown in discipline where the, the commanders on the ground saw what was happening, knew what was happening, but instead of stopping the soldiers from opening fire indiscriminately at the civilian population, seemed to focus on uh, collecting loot, uh, collecting uh, what they could from the local population, and, and indeed letting their troops run amok. So let's sort of fast forward now to what's happening in and around Bakhmut, and you keep getting reports, and there was a lot of that when Biden was, after his visit to Kiev and then in Poland and then meeting with the Bucharest Nine, there's a certain triumphalism on the side of the, the Western NATO that Ukraine is winning, and I, I'm not entirely convinced that Russia is out of the, out of the picture. I mean, look at the asymmetry. The Russians, their territory is not being touched. Their industrial base is not being touched. Their country is not being wiped out and destroyed like Ukraine is. So without the flow of weapons from the West, there's no equalizer. And everybody, and particularly the Germans, have taken so long to get stuff there. And one of the statistics I heard that was so alarming was that in terms of supply of ammunition is that... Uh, Ukrainians in one day go through equal amount of 155 millimeter howitzer shells than American factories produce in a month. Yep. So are you convinced, Simon, that this optimism that we're hearing from everybody, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to Biden himself, that the Ukrainians have, are winning or have almost won? Do you buy that? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at it. I'm, I mean, on, on, on the kind of more optimistic side, if you look at the initial uh, goals that Russia was pursuing in Ukraine, I think it's fair to say that Ukraine has already won. It has, you know, uh, survived as a country. Uh, its, its government and its president is still in place. It's uh, carrying on the fight. Um, but, you know, from the perspective of military leaders that I that I have interviewed, including the commander of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, General Valery Zaluzhny, um, they are not nearly as sanguine as, as some of the positions you hear uh, from 
political leaders um, in Kyiv and in in the West, you know, one thing that General Zaluzhny told me is any kind of uh, armistice, ceasefire, peace deal we may reach at some point through negotiations or however will only be a breather. It will only be a pause in the fighting to allow us to rearm uh, and and prepare for the next round of Russian attacks. Um, so he sees this as a kind of uh, forced forever war that Ukraine needs to accept and deal with um, as as a as a reality for many years and and you know as much as a generation or more into the future. That, that's how that's how he's thinking about this war and how he's planning for it. But I, I think there the voices that you hear also more muted at this point, but they're still, very much uh, prevalent, especially in Europe, but also in certain circles in Washington, that, you know, eventually we're going to have to encourage President Zelensky to come to the negotiating table. If that means slowing the supply of weapons, well, maybe we have to turn off the taps at some point. You know, the, these opinions are not openly expressed. They're they're actually quite taboo, I think, in, in the public rhetoric around the war. Um, but you hear them, uh, and, and they do emerge often as, as kind of uh, anonymous sources in the, in the press. You know, I've, I've heard that expressed by, by European officials. Uh, uh, Donald Trump says it openly, and, and uh, Donald Trump Jr. recently said that, you know, it's very easy to get a peace deal. You just stop providing all aid to Ukraine, and, and they'll be forced to negotiate. I really have, have doubts about whether that's the case for, for a couple of reasons. I think President Zelensky, uh, for one thing, um, has built alliances within uh, within NATO with countries like Poland, the Baltic states, um, that are so strong that I think even if the United States tries to close the taps, they would face massive resistance from within NATO, from their own allies like Poland, who see this war as existential for their own security. Um, and on on the on the, the the second factor there, the kind of Zelensky factor, is that he has an amazing ability to communicate not only on the diplomatic level with his fellow leaders, uh, uh, heads of state, but with the people in, with the societies in allied countries, through their celebrities, through their um, universities, through their think tank communities. So he really has this, this broad-based, you know, vertical and horizontal communication strategy that would make it politically difficult for a Western leader to try to pressure him to negotiate in that way. So I think I think we can't underestimate the agency that President Zelensky has in determining when and if, you know, Ukraine uh, comes to the negotiating table and, and uh, you know, s- stops pursuing victory on the battlefield. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Simon Schuster, yeah. what explains Donald Trump and Trump Jr. and Tucker Carlson and the, the pro-Putin caucus and the Freedom Caucus of, of the House, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene people. What explains that? I mean, and also not just on the far right, but on the parts of the American left as well. Obviously, people want peace. People are in favor of peace, but it's a cheap shot to be in favor of peace and want peace on Russia's terms, which is basically what most of the people on the left are arguing that you just have to stop the war right now. And you're talking about the right wanting to pull the plug on the only leveler that the Ukrainians have, which is Western military aid. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's a little bit outside my area of expertise. I'm, I'm, I very much focused my reporting on President Zelensky and, and his team, uh, so less so on, on American politicians. But I, I think it, there is a, an element of contrarianism where whatever the kind of uh, whatever the Biden administration is doing, the Republicans feel they need to to offer a counterpoint, because I, I it's hard for me to see any strategic logic to the idea that you know uh, the United States needs to abandon Ukraine. It, it's so obvious to me that uh, the American strategic interests in in Europe and in the world are best served by continuing to support Ukraine. Um, you know, even apart from the, the moral imperatives here, I think strategically it's it's obviously in the American interest. So it, it's hard for me to understand. I, I think, you know, it fits into some uh, Trumpian Republican um, tropes of America first, of uh, maybe um, tightening the purse, purse strings when it comes to foreign entanglements and, and staying out of foreign wars. Um, but I, I think the, the, the public in the United States, the, the support there remains strong. Um, and yeah, I, I don't see on the Ukrainian side any any 
intention to stop fighting on the battlefield. They're, they're still very intent on pushing the front line as far as they can before they think about any kind of uh, negotiations. So just in closing, then Zelensky's uh, wanting to meet with Xi Jinping sounds yeah. encouraging. At least it's smart on his, from his point of view to embrace it. Whether it'll work out or not is another matter, but that looks like the best hope we have, doesn't it? Uh, part, the other one being a complete defeat in, of Russia and a collapse of the Russian military, and I don't know that that's happening, is it? I, I don't know. It's it's hard to gauge. I you know I, I looked at the twelve point kind of peace plan, if you can call it that, in inverted commas that China, through its foreign minister, delivered to the Ukrainian side. It it doesn't look all that. Uh, serious. There's certainly nothing groundbreaking there. And one thing that's that's conspicuously missing is any condemnation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine from the Chinese side. Um, so I, I think there's there's an element of um, posturing uh, uh, from from the Chinese side. I, I hate to think so, but it could be a way of masking a decision that the Chinese are preparing to make or may already have made to indeed provide weapons to the Russian side. And they're trying to counterbalance that with some kind of performative diplomacy, um, but we'll we'll see. That that's that's a bit of a, a pessimistic take. I I don't know what what the, what the Chinese position is going to be going forward. It is encouraging that they're not um, so far siding with the Russians, at least you know openly and publicly. I think there's been an enormous amount of hesitation um, in in Beijing on on uh, in, in that respect, and and uh, uh, Xi Jinping has said. At least when it comes to uh, the use, potential use of nuclear weapons, he's really, I think, tried to rein in uh, Putin and the Russians and say that that would be a red line also for China. But but we'll see. I, I think the jury is still very much out about the role that the Chinese um, side is going to play in, in this war. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, uh, Simon Schuster. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Fight is Here, Vladimir Zelensky and the War in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the Chinese peace proposal, which they are calling a position paper, which has been met with much skepticism by the U.S. and NATO, although President Zelensky welcomes it and hopes to meet later with Xi Jinping. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gilbert Rosman, the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal of international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia. And he's the author of International Relations in Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gilbert Rosman. I'm happy to join you. Well, thanks for joining us, Gilbert. And what do you make of China's peace plan for Ukraine? I don't think it's really a peace plan. I think it's a statement that China is going to change the way it's dealing with the war in Ukraine. Uh, that China now will be more active. It's really been trying to keep a low profile until now. And I think it's saying now uh, China uh, will be more consequential. But that, in my mind, means uh, more actively supporting Russia uh, and trying to figure out a way to bring this war to the kind of conclusion that China would find most satisfactory. And would that be also a conclusion that Russia would find satisfactory? Uh, yes. If the worst outcome for China is if Russia loses and the United States is seen as winning, 
uh, supporting Ukraine. Uh, the, the best outcome uh, is either Russia actually wins or you end up with a, a kind of uh, ceasefire, amorphous situation. Russia can claim some degree of victory and China can be pleased that it became more active in helping bring about that result. Well, of course, the Chinese are describing what they issued on Friday as a position paper, not as a necessarily a peace plan. But it's my understanding is that the Chinese have never been happy with Putin in this war because Putin apparently did not inform Xi Jinping about his plans for a full invasion of Ukraine when they met for the Beijing Olympics early in February, just before the war itself. And that's when Xi Jinping declared that the relationship with Russia has no limits. Is that your understanding? I think it's a little vague uh, what Xi Jinping understood. There was already a widespread impression from U.S. intelligence, which China was given and China shared with Russia, that the war was going to be a big war and Russia was preparing to go in very soon. Uh, after the Beijing Olympics, so that uh, China would not be embarrassed by, by a war during the Olympics. But I don't think it's so important whether Putin told Xi exactly what he was going to do. Well, more important is the idea that uh, China, once the war began, decided that the outcome had to be uh, more favorable to Russia then it turned out it was becoming. So what about China's concerns about trade with Europe, a big trading partner, and in effect, the Chinese brand? I guess it gets to the point of who's in charge of China? Is the business lobby more powerful than the military lobby? It looks as if the military lobby is more powerful than the business lobby. We know that Xi Jinping comes out of the military and he's not well-educated. His only degree is in ideology. So what's your bet? They, the well, business people have less influence than the military people, and therefore this is more of a cosmetic peace plan than a real one? I, I don't think the business community has had very strong leverage for a number of years. Uh, there have been a number of crackdowns, emphasis on party uh, party control over businesses, people purged. Uh, so I think the business community's uh, losses have been coming for quite a while. The security community is, is very strong, but that doesn't mean that both don't matter. Xi Jinping is obviously concerned about uh, the Chinese economy, and it's had some rough patches over the last year or so. So I think that uh, Xi Jinping wants she she wants it both ways, and one of the purposes apparently of Wang Yi's uh, travel in Europe was to try to reassure European countries that uh, economic ties with China uh, should be uh, advancing, uh, but they are pulling away from China right now in a variety of ways, and uh, China is losing out. Uh, not just there, but in, in Asia, where there is uh, increasing uh, decoupling, moving certain kinds of investments out of China. Uh, so I think there's, there's a price to be paid, but that's not high enough to change the overall course of Chinese foreign policy. And Xi Jinping's sense that he has to side with Russia. Russia is the most important a strategic partner for China by far. So there's no, there's nothing then to the notion. There's always there's been a long animus between the two countries, a lot of suspicion. At one point uh, during the Cold War, the Russians approached the Americans with the idea of bombing the nuclear site at Loch Nor. So you have this very highly populated country, and then on the other side of the border, it's just virtually no population and enormous resources. So you don't think, Gilbert, that there's any sort of hidden agenda here that China is not unhappy with Russia being weakened? Uh, the Ch Sino-Russian relationship has improved uh, 
pretty consistently despite lots of strains over 30 years. This is a long period of improving relationships. And the relationship between Xi Jinping and Putin has been going on for more than 10 years with a lot of positive uh, vibes. Uh, sure, they've had lots of tensions and strains over the last 10 years. But what matters much more to China is the relationship within the triangle of China, Russia, and the United States. And they do not want a weak Russia, one that could turn towards the US, or one that could be really resentful of China. And so I think they, uh, uh, they are keen on maintaining a positive, improving relationship with Russia uh, and they will not let this war interfere with that overall goal. So in the last couple of minutes then, Gilbert, is this Chinese proposal or position paper, as they call it, is it then a feint? In other words, they basically put up a peace plan that it's not going to work because it's basically too pro-Russian and the Ukrainians can't live with the possibility that Russia can attack them at any moment and resume the war. So, in other words, is this a prelude to offering a peace plan, having the West reject it, and then China then deciding, okay, well, you don't want my peace plan. I'm now going to start supplying arms to Russia. Well, there's a real possibility that this is part of a multi-stage strategy. The peace plan was a no-go from the start, and it has elements in it that are extremely favorable to Russia, and it has concepts in it, principles like indivisible security, which are intended to say Russia's security is so important and China's security is so important that U.S. alliances are, are an attack, are, are the security intended for only one side and don't satisfy the other side's security needs. So I think that uh, this peace plan is a step toward more active Chinese involvement, it gives them a, a sort of a starting point uh, for becoming more involved in assisting Russia and insisting that that is consistent with an overall plan to try to end the war when in fact they don't really have a plan that's at all viable. Well, Gilbert Rosman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Gilbert Rosman, who's the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASEAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia. And he's the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why Americans are alienated from their own government after decades of self-serving economic dogma from the captains of industry about the magic of the free market, which has ended up serving the rich and powerful while impoverishing democracy and weakening our ability to tackle major challenges. Well, everywhere is Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Naomi Oreskes, who is a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She received the Young Investigators Award from the National Science Foundation, served as a consultant to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and was a consultant to the United States Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. 
Her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and Why Trust Science. Her latest book, Just Out, co-authored with Eric Conway, is The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Welcome to Background Briefing, Naomi Oreskes. Thank you. It's nice to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Naomi. And we have an example of the failure of American capitalism at the moment with the toxic spill in Ohio from the derailment. It is obvious that Norfolk Southern and its executives are not railway people. They're not invested in the rail business. They don't listen to their workers. In fact, they, they've suppressed a, a recent strike and have cut the uh, workforce down to a point where it's incredibly dangerous. You know, we have a thousand derailments a year, and this is all being driven by Wall Street. And Wall Street nowadays seems to be more about extracting wealth as opposed to creating wealth. So just to start with the context here, do you think that American capitalism, in a sense, is in a crisis? Yes, I do. I think the very fact that we're having this conversation shows that the extreme deregulatory ideology that has dominated for the past 40 years and whose origins we explain in our new book has really had a terrible effect on the American economy and American life. This most recent example, the train derailment, is a perfect example of what in the book we call the high cost of the free market. We've been bombarded with propaganda and ideology telling us that we should just trust the business community, let the market do its magic, and this will generate prosperity and all will be well. But what we've seen is that it's not true. It does generate prosperity up to a point, but it also generates huge external costs. And this latest train derailment and all the damage, all the environmental damage, the health damage is a very clear example of how much it costs when we don't take the time to regulate markets properly. So your book really, uh, in many ways, explains the way that Americans have become alienated from their own government. And it's sort of the opposite in a way of social democracy, where people vote for politicians who deliver government services. Here we've been consistently distracted by other issues like guns and prayer in school, etc. So the functioning of government is not understood in this country, and therefore people don't have a stake in it because they don't feel it delivers. But the reason it doesn't deliver is that they're not engaged. So it's a vicious cycle, is it not? But it, it's obviously encouraged by the oligarchs, the people like the Koch brothers, who may not have captured the country entirely, but they've certainly captured the Supreme Court. Yes, exactly. And this is really the whole point of the book is to explain how we came to this state of affairs, because um, as much as I'm no fan of the Koch brothers, this story actually begins a long time before them. And it involves a much more complicated network of American business that includes trade organizations going back to the very early part of the 20th century. And what we show in the book is that these business folks have been involved in a really long durée campaign to make us distrust our own government, as, as you just put it perfectly, to alienate us from our own government and to forget that government is us, that this is our government created by the founding fathers to represent the will of the people and not the will of a monarch or, in this case, an oligarch. And so what we show in the book is how this was done systematically in a very sort of astonishingly organized and thought out way to propagandize the American people through radio, through television, through film, through children's books, through academia, to make us think that the government was our enemy rather than an instrument of our own will. And of course, they had setbacks early on with the Depression, right? I mean, exactly. A big part of this story takes place in the Great Depression when American business was trying to claim uh, that the enemy of the people was not big business, but big government. But that argument rang pretty hollow when American capitalism was more or less in freefall, when 25% of the American workforce was out of work through no fault of their own, and when able-bodied men and women had been thrown out of work and onto breadlines. And so the business community realized that most people weren't going to fall for their arguments, that this was really a rather transparent attempt to protect the prerogatives and profits of big business. And so what did they do? They had to find a way to make this argument seem credible. And they did it by linking it to freedom, 
by claiming that if we allowed the government to become involved in the marketplace, whether it was limiting child labor or better regulating dangerous uh, dangerous industries like the railroads. And the railroads are a really big part of this story. So it's very ironic, but in a way appropriate that we're looking at yet again, a deadly accident involving railroads. Uh, so they linked it to freedom, that we would lose our freedom. And they launched this propaganda campaign called the Tripod of Freedom, claiming that free enterprise was foundational to American democracy, something that was really a pure invention. I mean, free enterprise doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. But by linking it to freedom, they thought they could get Americans on board. And there's a very telling document we found where one official at the National Association of Manufacturers, who are a key player in the story, say, look, we're not getting through to the American people, in part because they realize that this argument doesn't really hold water. So we have to link it to something that Americans hold dear, and that something is freedom. And in Merchants of Doubt, we showed how that exact same argument had been used in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s by the tobacco industry. And so what now we find is we can push that argument back even further to the 1930s. But ironically, we have reached a point now in America where freedom threatens life and liberty. Well, exactly. And of course, this is a big point of the conclusion of the book, that these arguments are really arguments about competing freedoms. It's always been the case, and it's long been recognized, going back to the Old Testament, um, the way Isaiah Berlin put it, that freedom for wolves can mean death for lambs. We all have things we want to do, but that we don't do, either because our conscience tells us it's wrong or because the law forbids it, because if we exercise our freedom to do X, we will hurt or damage someone else in the process. So we're not free to dump garbage on someone else's lawn. And yet somehow industry is free to dump carbon pollution into the atmosphere. And so why do we allow the second and not the first? Well, in part, because big business, American business and industry has tried to persuade us that if we control pollution, that somehow we'll lose our freedoms. But really we lose our freedom, we lose our health, we lose our well-being, we lose our prosperity when we allow businesses to dump carbon pollution into the atmosphere and other kinds of things which really hurt the American people. So just to move on from the Depression, of course, arguably the Depression ended with World War II and the massive arsenal of democracy and the, the ultimate victory of the Allies. And then in the post-war period, we had the GI Bill, which was one of the probably the, the best government programs of all time, in a way. It was so visionary where it created a middle class because they couldn't put all those men back to work that were being demobilized. So they gave them an education. And it's an example of a great American program. And then in the, in the late 40s in Hollywood, you had the sort of film noir period, which reflected the mood of the country and the, and the men that had fought in the war, who had seen terrible things and the Holocaust was exposed. And then the American Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers didn't like films like The Grapes of Wrath. So then began this House of Un-American Activities, and one of their shills and frontmen was none other than Ronald Reagan. And of course, Anne Rand, a failed screenwriter, was also in there starting this war against the woke, I guess, in Hollywood back in the 1940s. It's finally, you know, in a way, your book has crystallized my understanding because I obviously I'm here in Hollywood and I, I knew personally my, my sister was married to the son of one of the Hollywood 10. So I know that period pretty well. So let's talk about that, how they changed the kind of national narrative through entertainment to be more pro-business and less skeptical. Propaganda is fundamentally about storytelling. It's about trying to tell a story that is persuasive to people. So it was only a matter of time before the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would realize that they needed to mobilize Hollywood. And so in the book, we have a chapter that specifically looks at how they did that. In the 1930s, as you just said, in the early 40s, there were a lot of films that looked critically at American capitalism, that looked at the roots of the Great Depression, Grapes of Wrath looked at police violence against workers and ordinary people. But Hollywood in the 1950s turns against that. And there's this great speech we discovered where Eric Johnston, the president of the Motion Pictures Association of America, 
who had previously come out of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and had also been linked with a right-wing Christian movement called Spiritual Mobilization, makes a speech in which he declares there'll be no more grapes of wrath. And so Hollywood begins to develop censorship codes. And today we often think about censorship as being about sex or, well, mostly about sex and nudity. But this censorship code was about the portrayal of capitalism. And the idea was that Hollywood should make films that portrayed American capitalism in a good light that did not criticize the wealthy, that did not suggest that maybe the wealthy had got their wealth through untoward means, uh, that didn't criticize bankers. And one of the astonishing things we found in this doing this research was who was the author of those censorship codes? It was Ayn Rand, the same libertarian philosopher who in her own work is espousing a philosophy of radical individual freedom, is working to deny freedom to screenwriters and directors and producers in Hollywood. And she ended up on Social Security, right? <laughs> I, I don't even know, but I'm, I don't doubt it. I don't right, doubt it. Right. I mean, the hypocrisy of so many of these people who accept government largesse when it works for them and criticize it when it doesn't is, is pretty darn obvious. Well, it's happening now with Republican congressmen and senators taking credit for the infrastructure bill that's pouring money well, into their districts. And even which they more all egregious. voted against. You know. I know, even more egregious and more deeply, deeply morally offensive if you listen to San Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response to the State of the Union address. She took credit for the protection of the Little Rock Nine, the Black um, teenagers who fought for their freedom to go to school. The Little Rock Nine were defended by the federal government. It was the federal government that defended the freedom of those young people, not the state of Arkansas. The state of Arkansas, the governor tried to do everything he could to stop those young people from going to school. So there's tremendous amounts of revisionist history that take place. And we show that in the book as well, that the whole story of the tripod of freedom, the, the idea of big business as protector of American freedom is completely fabricated. I mean, it's just not even close to what actually has happened in American history. So let's talk for a minute, Naomi Reskis, about Christian individualism, uh, which morphed into Christian libertarianism and its influence in terms of uh, market fundamentalism. So one of the most interesting things about this story is to see what people do when they are faced with facts that don't fit their ideology, what Al Gore famously called inconvenient truths. And so one of the most interesting of those involves uh, Protestants in America in the 1930s. So in the 1930s, many mainline Protestants, many influential Protestant leaders felt that capitalism was really rather unchristian, that the idea that you just be left to fend for yourself um, or left to rely on private charity was unchristian. I mean, after all, think about it. The message of Jesus is a message of caring for and loving the poor. And so there were Protestant leaders in the 30s who argued that the government did have to do more to help people who were suffering during the Great Depression. This was a giant problem for the captains of industry who wanted to argue that the government should just stay out of the way and let business run things. So a group of business leaders led by J. Howard Pugh, the president of Sun Oil Company, later known as Sunoco, and also a leader in the American, Manu American Association of Manufacturers, decides to fund an organization specifically designed to try to align American Christians with free market capitalism. It's called spiritual mobilization. And some of the things they did were truly amazing. So they created magazines with names like Christian economics. They worked with people at seminaries to alter the syllabi in the training programs in seminaries to make the training more pro-capitalist, more pro-wealthy, to present wealthy people as people who had succeeded because of their dint of hard work rather than the idea that they might have perhaps exploited laborers. Um, and they funded pro-capitalist ministers, the two most famous being Billy Graham, uh, who we know was highly influential, influenced Richard Nixon, and Norman Vincent Peale. Fun fact that we discovered in this, so Norman Vincent Peale, who's being funded by these right-wing pro-capitalist um, business executives, captains of industry, two of his parishioners were Mary and Fred Trump, and Norman Vincent Peale officiated at the first wedding of Donald Trump. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and of course, <laughs> economics itself, Adam Smith being one of the founding fathers, I guess, 
The moral component of economics, of course, was lost over the ages as well. You chronicle Adam Smith concluded that when regulation, therefore, is in favor of the workmen, it is always just and equitable, but it is sometimes otherwise when in favor of the masters. So let's talk a little bit. We talked about Ronald Reagan's role in, in the House of Un-American Activities, but then he pops up again as President of the United States and makes his big inaugural speech, government is the problem, not the answer. That obviously had a, and he had his kitchen cabinet and et cetera, that had a really detrimental effect. One of the things that I think is often overlooked is that prior to Ronald Reagan, the U.S. had a savings economy where people saved money and wages have been flat since Reagan. They haven't gone up. But one of the ways that they've compensated for the lack of a raise in wages is that Reagan, under Reagan, they introduced credit, which gives people the illusion that their standard of living is being maintained, but they, in fact, become indentured. And, the, you know, the bank borrows money from the Fed at 2% and lends it back at 18.5%. And that has changed the nature of our life. We are all, so many people live on credit and are indentured. Yeah, well, there's a lot in that comment. So let me just pick up on two themes that you raised. One is academia and the other is Ronald Reagan. And they're, of course, interrelated. So one of the important uh, things we discuss in the book is the way these captains of industry also tried to influence academia. So everyone knows about the University of Chicago, the Chicago School of Economics. And many of us might think that those people came to prominence by through open competition in the marketplace of ideas. That thought would be mistaken. What we show in the book was that a group of industrialists, again, linked to these same organizations we've been talking about, in this case, particularly um, an industrialist called Jasper Crane, who had been an executive at the DuPont Corporation, consciously funded pro-market anti-regulation economists at the Chicago School and helped to make the Chicago School into what it famously later became. And one of the people they funded was the economist George Stigler. George Stigler is... Um, won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. He's a very famous name in economics. He published an edited version of Adam Smith. So many of us think of Adam Smith as the father of capitalism, the father of laissez-faire, a person who was opposed to government intervention in the marketplace. That is untrue. In fact, the Wealth of Nations has an extensive discussion, as you said, about the rights of workers about the need for workers to be paid a decent wage, about the appropriateness of workers banding together in what today we would call unions because of the power imbalance between managers and workers. And he also has an extremely thoughtful and extensive discussion of the need for regulation of banks and how banks actually threaten to bring down the entire economy if you don't properly regulate them. Most of us have no idea that Adam Smith said these things. And why is that? Well, one reason is because Stigler's version of The Wealth of Nations, which was uh, published by a leading publisher and widely distributed, expunged all of the places in The Wealth of Nations where Smith discusses the need for regulation, the need for what today we would call unions. And so he presents a version of Adam Smith, um, which is really a misrepresentation of the nuance and the subtlety of Smith's views. But that's the Adam Smith that most of us have been exposed to. One of the people who was exposed to this Chicago school way of thinking was Ronald Reagan. And so another important part of the story, and this is sort of the whole third third of the book, is how did these ideas go mainstream? Because they're being perpetuated, they're being funded, they're being cultivated by captains of industry who really do not represent the views of the American people. And public opinion polls consistently show that most Americans do want the government to protect workers, to protect the environment, to regulate unscrupulous business practice, practices and even to, to protect capitalism itself against monopoly. So how, does, how do these folks finally win the day? Well, a big part of the answer to that question is through Ronald Reagan. Most Americans know that before he was president of the United States, Ronald Reagan was an actor. What they don't know is that the transition that he went through from a pro-union democratic New Deal um, actor to an anti-government, anti-union Republican politician took place at the General Electric Corporation. Reagan spent uh, most of the late 1950s working for GE, where he did two things. 
he hosted a television program called General Electric Theater that was very, very popular. And so he became known to millions and millions of Americans as the host of this television program, which promoted didactic stories of individual initiative um, and stories that argued we didn't need the government, we could just stand on our own two feet. But he also went on the lecture circuit on behalf of General Electric promoting GE's anti-union, anti-government ideology. He also was given reading lists by GE executives of things he needed to read, which included um, foundational texts of neoliberal Austrian economics, et cetera. When he leaves GE, he leaves with a completely different ideology than he went in. He has a set of speeches that he has cultivated and honed working for General Electric. And he leaves with a set of powerful backers in corporate America who finance his run for political office first as um, governor of California and then later to run for president of the United States. So Naomi Reski, just in the last minute then, freedom has to be recaptured. Uh, it's been appropriated and abused. And as I mentioned earlier, we are reaching a point in this country where freedom threatens life and liberty. You know, you're free to have a gun, but you're not free to go to a mall or theater or a church without the possibility of being shot by some madman with a military-style weapon. So just in the last minute, let's talk a little bit about how, I mean, who can do it? The Democratic Party, the American people, they've got to reclaim freedom. Absolutely. And um, if we were on television, I would be wearing my American flag pin. I think progressives and liberals have made a big mistake by allowing the right wing to capture the ideology of freedom. Um, freedom, as you say, is a really complex notion. Uh, philosophers since Plato have worried about competing freedoms and how we find the right balance. And I think it's pretty clear that in the United States today, we do not have the right balance. As you said, millions of people. There are hundreds of millions of guns in this country. People have the freedom to own guns, but I don't have the freedom to go to the mall or to a concert or even to send my children to school without having worried that they will be shot by a madman. So we need to have a different kind of conversation. And the whole point of this book really is to try to open up the opportunities for that kind of conversation, which you've helped us to do here today. Well, Naomi Reskis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Naomi Oreskes, who's a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She received the Young Investigators Award from the National Science Foundation, served as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency, and was a consultant to the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. Her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and Why Trust Science. And her latest book, Just Out, co-authored with Eric Conway, is The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice said it something to me